Hey there, welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast focusing exclusively on Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I'm Dan, and today we're bringing you the recordings of a debate that occurred on October 3rd, 2018, between Republican State Senator Martin J. Golden and Democratic challenger Andrew Gennardis. Unlike some of our other community archive events, we're treating this one a bit differently. Due to popular demand on our Twitter poll at at RadioFreeBR, we decided to include some fact-check and analysis on this one. We'll include a short break after many of the responses to go over what the candidates said, explain legislation, and provide some context on what happened after the debate. This debate was held at the Fort Hamilton Senior Center. It's been moderated for the past 10 years by Peter Killen, president of the Bay Ridge AARP. The debate was held under the auspices of the Bay Ridge Interagency Council on Aging, an affiliate of the Brooklyn Council on Aging. To start our analysis, we'd like to talk about some major criticisms of the debate, specifically those levied by Jerry Kassar, Marty Golden's chief of staff, against the moderator for being biased and not properly representing issues of importance for seniors in the district. Mr. Kassar also says that the moderator did not let any seniors ask their own questions. We'll let you decide. You can expect questions on educating grandchildren, children being the victims of sexual assault, maintaining safe drinking water, term limits, car inspections, tolls, and holding town halls. Without further ado, let's join Peter and Marty and Andrew and the crowd at the Fort Hamilton Senior Center. Senator Martin Golden will talk to you for five minutes on why you should send him back to Albany. Marty Golden. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for being the moderator here this morning. Andrew, good morning. Good morning to all of the great audience here that's from our great communities of Bay Ridge, Dyker, and Bensonhurst. Thank you for being who you are. Um, this is a great morning here at Fort Hamilton Senior Center amongst our friends and our neighbors. And we stand between the Verrazano Bridge and Fort Hamilton Army Base through the structures, the true structures of our nation. nation. And absolute greatness is what shows our community that we call home. And regardless of what you see or hear, public service is truly a noble profession and that allows us to truly make a difference. That is why I've been honored to serve the New York City Police Department, as be your councilman, and to be your senator. And I will continue that confidence that you give me each and every year, and I hope to get your vote on November 6th for my re-election. Thank you. Because we have much more to do and we will continue to do that. We live in the greatest city and the greatest nation in the world, and fighting for our seniors is one of the most important things that we can do. We've been part of this center for many, many years, and many of the senior centers across our great district. In the budget this year alone, we put in 50 million for expanded in-home services for our elderly, 27 million for wellness nutrition programs, make sure we have meals on wheels, and 27 million for Alzheimer's and other dementia-related programs and $31 million, uh, for community services for the elderly program, $172,000 for the New York Foundation of Senior Home Sharing and Respite Program, and $132,000 for the Senior Action Council Hotline, and $250,000 for the Bay Ridge Center so they can find a new home for our seniors at that end of uh, Bay Ridge community. 
and another $160,000 for NORTHS, which I created, the Open North, the Natural Occurring Retirement Community, which allows us to do a study of our senior content and to get in there and offer services to the senior content so they can keep and stay and live in their homes. Or they got a broken window, a broken door, they need something fixed, the door we fixed it. They need food, we make sure we get them food. We make sure that they have the opportunity to stay and live where they grew their families, and we're going to continue to do that, as well as funding allocated for the New York City Parks Department for the new van here at Fort Hamilton Senior Center. There's also $1.4 million to support elderly abuse prevention initiatives, funding a three-hour extension of adult protective service call center hours and additional resources to report suspected cases of elder abuse. Ladies and gentlemen, elder abuse is serious. Elder abuse is something that goes on in our community. It's a dirty secret. We're out there to prevent it. We're out there to help. Another eight million for funding to improve the expanded New York's the risky abuse of financial exploitation. I also did Granny's Law, which is a law that protects our seniors, those that will go in and harm our seniors. This is a felony. If you go after you hurt a senior, we will, in fact, go in there to help them and make sure that these people are put in jail. We also did the EPIC program, $132 million to make sure that we had our prescription programs, our pharmaceutical insurance coverage. We also did DREAM, SCREAM, to allow for our seniors to raise up to $50,000 to make sure that our seniors can stay and live in their homes. And that, I think, is very, very important. Not only our seniors, but those that are hurting as well, our disabled. So we're there. Responsive legislation increased the eligibility programs for that, like I said. And we're also in the process of putting in more senior housing at the Angel Guardian location. That is part of the agreement that we made to build more senior housing. We need senior housing for our seniors, and that's part of the deal is to make sure that the Angel Guardian is part of that deal. So we're looking forward to working with them and make sure that Norwegian home and to make sure that the St. Nicholas home and uh, Hamilton Park are strong for our seniors and that we have places for them. We also did the MTA, 400 million in congestion pricing, to make sure that they have almost $10 million in capital money so that they can build and make sure that we get the 21st century system that we need and prevent that overcrowding. The lockbox legislation that we have, that's another piece of legislation that's on the governor's desk. Hopefully he will sign it and stop the governor from pulling that money out of the fare boxes and using it in a general fund. We also restored the weekend X27 and X28 buses. We put elevators in 86th Street. They're coming to 95th and 77th Street. We got the mayor to put up his $416 million to get us $836 million that we needed so badly for our MTA system. Thank you. Vote for Golden. Golden's there. And he's going to stay there to work for our good seniors here. Hey, it's Dan. Well, that was a laundry list, but it's important to note this isn't explicitly what Golden has accomplished. It's what the entire New York State Legislature has accomplished, collectively, including things gotten by Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. Gennardis fact-checks that in a second, so we're kind of stepping on his toes here, but if we're fact-checking, we gotta be complete. Sadly, much of Marty's list is nearly impossible to track down, because Albany makes the funds distributed by specific legislatures entirely hidden. There's no way to prove what Marty did and what the state did anyway. 
Further, without that data, it's really impossible to determine what senior center donations came from the state, what funds were supplied through Golden's campaign committee, friends of Marty Golden, etc. For example, the much-touted senior events in the neighborhood, and to a certain extent all of the civic events, cruises, what have you, they're all actually campaign expenditures by Golden, not state-sponsored events. We mention this because Marty's opening statement is entirely geared around proving that he brings home the bacon, so to speak. We need to provide context on that. Golden funds a host of things through his campaign donors. Local nonprofits, especially, rely on Golden's campaign war chest, which is allowed to be spent on constituent services, especially when he doesn't have a challenger. Depending on how you look at it, this is either incredibly generous or makes entire communities' civic health dependent on whether Marty gets enough donations. And importantly, it makes nonprofits nervous if he needs to spend that war chest on actual campaigning, because it depletes the same pot of money he uses to donate to them. Tying campaign money to our community is a major reason why incumbents of both parties maintain power in New York. Forgive the editorializing here, but putting a lockbox on this would simply be good government. Anyway, here's what we are able to find. Golden claims that he founded the Bay Ridge Nork while listing $160,000 that he put toward its maintenance. We couldn't find the $160,000, we don't doubt that it exists, but we do think that claiming sole credit for the Nork is a bit disingenuous. The Nork, or Naturally Occurring Retirement Community, is a designation that lets Bay Ridge get funding for senior services, and it's administered and chosen by, and created by, the New York State Office for Aging. Surely Golden deserves credit for the advocacy. But joining him at the ribbon-cutting in 2006 were representatives from the Bay Ridge Center for Older Adults, Lutheran Medical Center, Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, Assemblyman Moronis, and members of the Bethlehem Lutheran Church. It takes a village. Golden also mentions elevators quite heavily in relation to subway stations. For background, Golden was criticized very heavily for using his vote on the MTA Capital Review Board a couple years ago to make sure that Bay Ridge got a fancy station renovation last year. The result was a six-month cosmetic closure of the Bay Ridge Avenue station, which included no improvements in wheelchair access or a much-demanded elevator, to say nothing of service improvements. Protesters marred the opening for Marty, an event designed to show off that he could improve subway service. So did Marty make these new elevators happen? They were part of the MTA's plans for nearly a decade, and they simply had gone unfunded. It's much more accurate to credit the new MTA president, Andy Byford, who committed to doubling the pace of elevator installations, as well as groups like the Center for Independence of the Disabled in New York, Comptroller Scott Stringer, and many more. In short, if Marty was involved in these decisions, and by the way, the Capitol Review Board doesn't do meeting minutes, Marty was a minor player at best. Either way, prioritizing elevators doesn't square up with his previous priorities. This taking-the-credit theme extends to many other things that he mentioned. Angel Guardian's home was also negotiated with Councilman Brannon, civic groups, and many more. The lockbox legislation for the MTA came on the heels of Golden diverting nearly $500 million in MTA funds over the past six years and then getting flack for it. Anyway, let's hear from Andrew. Thank you, Senator. And now, Mr. Andrew Gennadis. Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Marty, for being here. Thank you to every one of you who came out here today to hear from uh, both candidates for this forum. My name is Andrew Gennardis. 
I'm born and raised here in Bay Ridge. I'm the graduate of our local public schools, graduate of Hunter College, and a public interest attorney. And I'm running for the state senate to represent our community up in Albany. Because I feel and I believe, and after talking to thousands of my neighbors, I know that the status quo is leaving us behind. We need fresh ideas in Albany. We need fresh perspectives in Albany. We need fresh energy up in Albany. How many people here have seen their rents continue to go up year after year after year? How many people here have seen their property taxes continue to go up year after year after year? Who has seen their prescription drug costs go up year after year after year? Who gets caught in the donut holes? Who has seen their subway commutes get worse year after year after year? Who keeps getting asked to pay more and more for express bus service year after year after year? Who sees their kids and their grandkids struggling to pay for college year after year after year? We keep talking about these problems year after year after year, and we're not going to solve these problems if we keep sending the same people to Albany to do the same thing over and over and over again. It's plain and simple. Marty read a litany list of all the things he's voted for in the budget. That gets us to the bare minimum. That's what everyone votes on across the entire legislature in the budget. Everybody does it. Every politician goes up to Albany to say the same exact thing. And look where that's gotten us. Look with the state of our neighborhoods today. Look at the issues that we're all facing on a day after day basis. It's not enough. Not nearly enough. We need bold ideas to help move our communities forward, not stay the same. The status quo is not good enough for us. We need to think about ways that we can make our communities better. We need to finally make the MCA more accessible and accountable to riders. Because I don't trust the governor, the mayor, anyone to get it right. I want riders to have a representative on the MCA board so we know where our funds are going when they're making these improvements. We need real senior housing. The developer at Angel Guardian wants luxury senior housing. Who here can afford luxury senior housing? Raise your hand. No one. So that housing is not for seniors in this neighborhood. Nobody can afford luxury senior housing. We need ideas to improve our education system. I'm campaigning on a pledge to make New York State the first state in the country to constitutionally guarantee free quality public education. It would be a landmark legislation that would put us on the forefront of educating the next generation of our, of our youth. We need to be thinking about protecting our seniors, and it's not just on senior housing, it's not just on lowering prescription drug costs. We need new ideas. I have a proposal to create a GI Bill for seniors. Because seniors who are retiring want to go back to school for a second or a third degree or want to go for new job retraining, we should be incentivizing and helping them out. I want to create intergenerational relationships between seniors and young people. NYU does a great job of this where they pair senior citizens and college freshmen to live in the same dorms together. It's a great way to share a wealth of knowledge and ideas and experience with each other. I want to give tax credits for caregivers, for family caregivers. Because too many members of our family are taking care of loved ones, and it's really hard for them to get by. We should make caregivers a protected status as well, so those same caregivers can have legal rights to make sure they're protecting those that they love most. We need new ideas, guys. We need new ideas to help move our communities forward. That's why I'm running for the state senate. That's my record, and that's the campaign that I'm pledging to run on. And I hope that I can earn the votes of each and every one of you on November 6th. Thank you. Andrew's a bit of a fact-check challenge, since he hasn't held elected office. He's proposing ideas, but without implementation, we can only do so much. Rest assured, if he wins, we will be tracking his progress on these issues. 
The biggest thing we can check here is Gennardus' assertion that the Angel Guardian's home will have what he brands as, quote, luxury senior housing, which isn't geared toward local seniors. Gennardus is referring to the senior housing portion of the Angel Guardian's development currently underway. Angel Guardian is a former Catholic orphanage in Diker Heights, and it's a full residential block in size. It was sold by the Sisters of Mercy to a developer this past year, and there's been much concern over what was to become of it. It's going to mainly be a market-rate housing development with some community concessions, including a school, room for a charter, and a senior facility. The senior facility, according to developer Scott Barone, will be an 120 to 150 bed skilled nursing facility, which the developer himself called, quote, luxury senior living, unquote, when interviewed by Julianne McShane of the Brooklyn Courier. We think the developer may have just been talking up the quality of the development, not setting price rates, so we consider this to be a simplistic statement on the part of Gennardus, and though maybe not far from the truth. Skilled nursing facilities like Angel Guardian will be are generally more expensive than assisted living facilities by a significant margin since they require licensed nurses and need to provide much more complex medical care. It'd be fair to say that with limited bed counts, brand new facility to take care of, skilled nurse staffing, Angel Guardian would likely be looking at a price point that makes it competitive citywide, not locally. But again, this is speculation. So let's move on to some questions. <laughs> I have a couple of questions, and then we're going to take questions from the floor, and the people in the audience will then ask their questions of you. Charter schools is a synonym for private schools. Each and every dollar taken from public education and given to a charter school is money taken away from the public school system. Are you for or against charter schools, and why? And both is Andrew, and then Sarah. I'm a proud graduate of a public school system. I went to Fort Hamilton High School. I did my brother, my sister, and my mother. My mother is a public school educator. I'm proudly endorsed by the teachers union, by the UFT. We do not need charter schools in this neighborhood. Charter schools are not the answer to our public school We're the most democratic school district in the city of New York. We gave them 12,000 classroom seats over the last 10 years. They wanted 10,000. We gave them 12,000, and we're still the most overcrowded school district in the city of New York. I fought to put in new schools. I fought to put in new additions. And I'm going to continue to do that. And charter schools are public schools. Charter schools reduce the overcrowding in our district. Charter schools work as long as they don't interfere with our public school system, and they do not. Over by the Angel Guardian site, they're going to put a public school. They're either going to go to St. Rosalia or part of the uh, Angel Guardian site. And there is talk and conversation of a charter school that may go there. Charter schools are public. Charter schools are competition. Charter school gives up the opportunity to get the best education for our children and let our children excel across the board. And that's what we want for our families, for our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. Thank you. We expect our listeners to already have opinions on charters. However, we would like to note the claims of overcrowding by Golden, which are indeed true. School District 20, which spans neighborhoods outside of Marty's 22nd State Senate District, are among the most overcrowded in the city. But if you're talking about within School District 20, as Marty is, Bay Ridge is not the worst. Specifically, if you listen to our episode, A School of Our Own, you'd learn that the most dire need is in Diker Heights. 
Further, Golden says that he helped build more schools in the district. We consider this, again, an example of taking too much sole credit for something that the state does anyway. The state funds about half of the city's school construction authority. For example, the leadership role Golden took for school construction was in 2007, over a decade ago, when he allocated the money for expansions to PS229, IS259, and others. He helped provide $6.51 billion for schools across the city in a bill that year to make sure that those expansions took place, but the city itself footed $13.1 billion, nearly double that amount. So again, it's debatable how much of this is exclusively golden and specific to him rather than any state legislator who would have been in that position. Anyway, back to the forum. Okay, I have a follow-up question. Uh, in the statement concerning the separation of church and state, there's a statement out there that this church and the state should be separated. Should state monies be given to parochial schools and why? Generally? <laughs> state money to parochial schools. Well, I'm a firm believer in the Constitution of the United States and the First Amendment, and the First Amendment is very clear. There shall be no separation of church and state. There'll be separation of church and state. Sorry, confused there. Uh, so no, I think that we have a phenomenal public school system, and that public dollars should go to support our public resources, plain and simple. I believe it's uh, one nation under God. And I believe that we have an opportunity to educate our children, whether it's in public, whether it's in charter, or whether it's in private, or whether it's in parochial. And that's giving our kids and our families opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, we can easily create a tax credit that would give these parochial schools the opportunity to take that overcrowding away from our schools. And yes, there are 22 categoricals out there, ladies and gentlemen. Those categoricals these schools get paid for is attendance, because that is part of the daily operation of educating a child. Technology is another area, a categorical, that the government pays into our parochial schools. So they presently pay into our parochial schools, and that is going to continue under state law. So what we need to do, if we want to really enhance these uh, parochial schools, is to put up a tax credit for these parochial schools and allow them to excel and give our kids and our families opportunities. That's what America is all about. That's what our community is all about. That's what we are all about. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. So Gennardus quickly dismissed state funding of parochial schools on federal constitutional grounds. Golden began his defense by citing One Nation Under God, which, by the way, was only added to our pledge in the 1950s. But I understand the intent. After all, Brooklyn has often been called the land of homes and churches. Either way, Golden supports state funding and wants to expand it, critically not just for parochial schools, but private schools as well. His defense rests on two points. Firstly, that state funding already exists for parochial and private schools, specifically with technology funding, textbooks, and other support for non-denominational learning materials. This will come up in a later question. These are in fact bills that Golden himself has pushed to expand, notably in regards to allowing the funds to be used to let the state pay for high-tech metal detectors and surveillance cameras in private schools. Golden is, incidentally, on the Temporary State Committee for Science, Technology, Incubation, and Entrepreneurship, which brings him into the close orbit of technology lobbyists. 
In addition to defending the current status quo, Marty builds on his charter argument that these schools reduce overcrowding and thus are good for public schools. Before we get into that, the person who asked the question delivered a follow-up and some audience members got into it as well. Our first out-of-left-field question, Marty claims he is not in support of making parochial schools free because then they'd be public schools, which is inaccurate. A free parochial school would just be a free parochial school. The question didn't say to make them publicly funded. Some background. Catholic schools have been bleeding enrollment for over a decade, especially due to competing charters, which is leaving many empty seats at parochial schools. This makes the argument that parochials alleviate overcrowding misleading. How can non-public schools reduce overcrowding while they struggle to fill seats themselves? In our opinion, this contradiction is explained when Marty says that he wants, quote, an even playing field to a degree, unquote. Consider it a half-truth. Private and parochial schools do reduce overcrowding in public schools, but not nearly as effectively as simply building another public school since they use space much less effectively. Anyway, back to the debate. New York State is a very big state. Um, what's happening in Washington, they're passing laws, and some of the laws they pass, or some of the laws they're getting rid of allow a lot of different things to happen throughout the United States of America. One is hydrofracking. Fracking. Hydrofracking. If you don't want it, to know what it is. It's getting methane gas out of shale, and it makes companies, gas companies, very, very, very rich. They bring up the methane gas, which we cook with in our kitchens. Uh, they run buses. Does a lot of things with meth get methane. Problem is, and this is the question coming up, gentlemen. <coughs> Getting methane out of rock poisons the environment and poisons the water in the communities where, it, where they're fracking. Washington wants to do away with the laws uh, concerning fracking. New York State, I believe, now has a law where 
they prohibited fracking either in the state or in parts of the state. What is your, will you still support, here is the question, even if Washington overturns the fracking laws, will you support New York State not allowing fracking? Andrew. Absolutely. Fracking is a danger to our environment. It's not economically sound. It is poisoning our water. It is destroying our natural resources. And there is no reason whatsoever that we should be engaged in fracking of any kind. Uh, and we should go further than that. And we need to move New York State to a system of full renewable energy. California has done a great job of getting this state there. There's no reason why New York State can't become fully renewable by 2040, 2050, or even fit sooner. Uh, it's time. This is the way of the future. We have to move to a more sustainable energy future, and fracking is not the answer. Andrew again, taking only 30 seconds to answer the question. He says he'd continue to support the state's ban on hydrofracking, especially if federal legislation was passed to allow it, which indeed is currently being considered by Donald Trump's EPA. Gennardis also went further, pledging to support making New York State fully reliant on renewable energy by 2050, or, quote, sooner. This is word for word a campaign pledge from Cynthia Nixon, who ran against Cuomo in the primary for governor. Cuomo has previously only pledged 80% of renewables by that date, not 100. Andrew here seems to be taking a much stronger stance on the environment than the governor, despite having Cuomo's endorsement. Let's hear Marty's answer on hydrofracking. Great question. I'm up last year, too. I'm not sure why the interagency has this. Oh, two years ago, I apologize. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't do fracking unless it's safe. Right now, it's not safe. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? It's outlawed in the state of New York. You can't do it. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. A rare short answer from Golden, under 20 seconds, half of which is seemingly spent upset that the question has come up before in a previous debate, we're not sure which one, will fill you in on some detail beyond those 20 seconds. The question was, would you support the ban if it was overturned federally, to which Golden replied, it's banned statewide. This is what we call a dodge. He also implied that he'd support hydrofracking if it was safe, so let's explore what that means. The process of getting natural gas by breaking apart subsurface rocks with pressurized chemicals has been around since the 1950s, and since then it really hasn't been subject to much improvement as far as safety goes. Most improvements came specifically in terms of the drilling sheath that keeps the fracking fluid from seeping into the water table, but on the whole the process itself is inherently pollutive. A reason we don't have much data on how precisely pollutive it is is because we have an underfunded United States Geological Survey. We don't track groundwater quality before fracking starts, which means we can't quantify how bad it gets afterward. Golden implied that fracking can be safe. Most reports that claim that and support that use unreliable groundwater data. If he really wanted to prove it, he could help fund these studies. That or making oil and gas companies publicly reveal what's actually in fracking fluid, which is a secret and could help make the data better because scientists would know what they're looking for. Golden has also previously stated in 2011 that he supports hydrofracking and thinks it would be good for job creation upstate. To this day, oil and gas companies constitute a small share of Golden's campaign donations. Gonardis has no oil or gas industry donations, according to votesmart.org, as of this recording. Sal? We have a Sal here? I know we do. He wrote down the question. Yeah, it's Sal's here. 
every two years. In fact, they get free inspections over there. I would expect that from New York State. But I do expect from New York State to change the laws that we don't have to bring the car in for inspection every year. We should bring it in every two years like Jersey. It's a pain in the neck when you bring it in to get the car inspected. But you want to get $37. And usually the mechanic, they don't care for that. If we bring the car in every two years, it'd be $74, so we'd make them happier. But there's another thing. Obama gave everybody. No, you with the question. The question is, gentlemen, how do you feel about inspection certificates on cars being two years instead of one? Good? Right, right. Great. Okay, sorry, actually, we hate to interrupt here, but the questioner was seemingly cut off when trying to add some context to the question about moving back car inspections from two years to one. On the tip of his tongue was the Obama car allowance rebate system, known as cash for clunkers. Widely considered a policy disaster, it was intended to offset the costs for car owners who had vehicles that couldn't meet fuel efficiency goals. It was supposed to let people trade cars in for new vehicles with better emission standards. It seemed that the questioner was concerned about the car ownership costs that he would bear as a result of creating a cleaner environment, which we felt was an important element to the question. It's all about safety, ladies and gentlemen. I believe we should do it every year. I gotta tell you right now, I started off with a flat tire this morning. I got my other cars in the shop because the rim is cracked. Um, those are tire issues, those are uh, rim issues. But when it comes to the, the wear and tear of the vehicle in the city of New York, believe me, we have to get them inspected on an annual basis. I believe it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's hard to hear, but the original questioner is rebutting Golden's response that he's not concerned about tire wear and tear, but emission standards checks being yearly or not. Golden responds. The, uh, the senator did answer the question. Thanks for it. Makes you better make sure that the gases that are coming out that they're emitting, that there is the right emittance of, of gas and pollutants into the air. That's why we do these inspections to make sure that they don't um, <laughs> abuse that. That's why he's no longer the president. He is the new president today. Thank you, Sal. Andrew. So here we have Golden saying that, though he agrees that cars need to be inspected yearly for safety purposes, he seems to disagree that the emission standards are important or need to be checked, saying that Obama's push for cleaner engines is, quote, why he's no longer president, to some groans from the crowd. It sounded like the moderator, Peter, was hoping to veer it away from being a loaded partisan question, but Golden stepped in anyway. Safety is everything. Cars have the ability to kill people if they're misused, if they're speeding. We need to make sure that cars are, incredible, are used incredibly safely, and that's why we should be inspecting cars on a yearly basis. Plain and simple. Thank you. 
Alan Faust, are you still here? Another short answer for Gennardus, where he agrees with Marty about yearly inspections for safety purposes. His aside that cars can kill seems to have prompted an audience member to shout, speeding. For context, this is likely a reference to Marty's own driving record, specifically his being flagged multiple times for speeding in school zones, and an instance in 2005 where Golden fatally wounded a senior citizen with his SUV. While the matter was settled with the woman's estate out of court for $750,000, it's important to note that the lawyer for the deceased woman's estate, Anthony Zemfakis, formerly ran for state assembly as a Republican in Staten Island. Yeah, Zemfakis' campaign actually donated funds to Marty Golden's re-election campaign that year, three years before he ended up representing the deceased 71-year-old's estate. He settled with Marty, and no trial resulted over Marty's role in the fatal crash. In short, Golden may have had a friend on the other side of the table while settling out of court for that 750000 in a rather severe conflict of interest. Anyway, back to the debate. Okay, Alan had a question earlier that he asked the candidates for Congress, and it's a good question for the state of New York. So, do you favor term limits... For the elected officials in New York State, the governor, the controller, the lieutenant governor, and the Senate and the Assembly. Term limits, gentlemen. Your choice and how long, but not at all. Andrew. I think we absolutely need to have term limits for executive offices, governors, presidents, mayors. But I think legislatures, we need to actually... So we have term limits already. They're called elections, and they happen every two years. We need to make it easier for people to participate in the voting process so they can hold their elected officials more accountable on a two-year basis to make sure that when they, we send them to Washington, to Albany, or to City Hall, that they're actually doing the people's work and not speaking on behalf of special interest corporations and out-of-district donors. Gennardus here says he doesn't support term limits for state, senate, or assembly. Instead, he pivots toward voting reforms on these positions. Since these positions are up every two years, they are the most common kind of election in the state. According to Gennardus' website, his voter reform issues would be automatic voter enrollment, lowering the voting age for municipal elections to 16, which would affect the city council, the mayor, etc., but not state senate races, just a reminder Gennardus is running for state senate, He's also in favor of increasing language translations on ballots and allowing for early voting, according to the website. For executive positions like governor and mayor, Gennardus says he's in favor of term limits. We also consider this a lost opportunity for Gennardus to pressure Golden on his role in the 2016 Democratic voter purges. It was Golden's Board of Elections appointee, Simon Shamoon, who was in charge of the Brooklyn office when 120,000 Democratic voters were dropped from the rolls. This was right before the 2016 presidential election. Shamoon used to be employed by Golden as a staffer and aide. It was a subordinate of Shamoon who instead took the fall for that voter purge. Let's hear from Golden. I'd definitely be in favor of it if term limits in the city council. I'd be in favor of term limits in state legislature as well as all the other government uh, offices here in the state of New York. One of his supporters is there, uh, Peter Abadi, 36 years. Time to move on for him. Here we have Golden across the board saying he favors term limits on all forms of city government. He starts off with the city council, oddly, which just got term limits a few years ago. 
He then makes a strange aside that Peter Abate of the Assembly, who represents Borough Park, Bath Beach, Bensonhurst, and Diker, has been in office for 36 years. Marty says that his 16 years in office, though, shouldn't qualify him for being term-limited out. Based on this assumption, Golden is adjusting term limits between 16 to 36 years, which is bizarre. And it would be the longest term limit in the nation, with Arkansas just barely being comparable at 16 years max for state legislature. We have to wonder if this qualifies as a term limit at all, or if Marty is just making a very poor joke? This is an unforced error in sports terminology, especially since Golden could have said he voted for a term limit bill in the past. In 2017, he did vote to keep majority and minority speaker positions and other titular state legislative jobs term limited. Michael Tobman, Golden's campaign director, made this point after the debates. However, that bill was just for titles and positions within the state senate leadership and hierarchy. It wasn't for term limits on holding public office. We can't find in Martin's 16-year legislative history in the Senate any support for term limits in the ways that he's describing. With this conflicting record, we'll believe it when we see it. To quote his campaign director when speaking to Julianne Cuba at the Brooklyn Courier, quote, Within the framework of what the law currently is, however, he will not unilaterally limit his public service, unquote. I woke up this morning and listening to the radio, and I heard something very interesting. There are a group of people right now demonstrating throughout New York City for congestion pricing. Namely, they want to put tolls on the bridge and tunnels. They feel that the money should go into the railroad system. But how many of you drive cars? How many of you ride bikes? Quite a few hands just went down. Seriously? Okay. Um, I don't ride a bike anymore. Patricia does not ride a bike anymore. Get a certain age, maybe, and we don't ride bikes. So, gentlemen, the question is on congestion pricing, putting tolls on the bridges and tunnels, on the bridges that leave, that go from Brooklyn into Manhattan. Yeah, that's it. There are three bridges. How do you feel about congestion pricing? And if it, and they're fighting to put it on taking the money away from there and giving it to the MTA. So, Andrew, congestion pricing. Our mass transit system needs $100 billion of investment. $100 billion to put in new signals, elevators at every station, replace our subway cars, and give us a 21st century subway system, not a 19th century subway system. We need massive investments and congestion pricing can get us there. So I support congestion pricing with one big caveat, two big caveats. Number one, the proposal that was, that was discussed last year would actually lower the tolls on the outer borough bridges like the Verrazano, make it cheaper for people to go back and forth to Staten Island while imposing a fee to enter the central business district into Manhattan. I want to make sure that we're lowering the outer bridge tolls, number one. Outer borough bridge tolls, not the outer borough tolls. Uh, that too. Uh, and number two, that all the money raised from congestion pricing goes towards mass transit improvements. Plain and simple. This is not meant to be a piggy bank that the government can do whatever they want with it. Every dime raised from congestion pricing should go right into the subway system, should go into new elevators, new signals, new subway cars, and making sure that we have a 21st century public transportation system. Thank you. 
we just did in Justice Pricing in, in the state of New York, we did it for for higher vehicles in the city of New York. That raises over $400 million that gives them access to $10 billion in capital funding. It's not $100 billion, at least $30 billion. The $30 billion that's been up there is a new plan that the MTA has a 10-year plan, which the R, the N, and the D are in that plan. That's in the first year. And then, of course, it's in the outer years. But the 10-year program, all of that signaling system will be fixed. So we're in the first phase of this plan to get us up and running. The Verrazano Bridge, as you know, that has been something that I've been fighting for for a long time. That is the most expensive bridge in the country. And we should not be paying $17 going up to $19 to get over that bridge. It's just plain wrong. We have families that go to school there, live there, and work there. We should not have that bridge at that cost. So congestion pricing is something that's going to be on the table next year. It's not just going to be the bridges. It's going to be every vehicle that's south of 96th Street. So there's a lot being discussed on how they're going to set up these cameras or how they want to set up this congestion pricing. We've got to be smart about it. We've got to make sure what we do does go and get invested back into the MTA system. But on the same uh, same token, we cannot allow our businesses to go out of business. We've got to be able to have the opportunity to get in and out of the city of New York, and we've got to make it and do it in a responsible manner. And you have my commitment to do that. $10 billion this year, there for the now. We'll get that other $20 billion as we move through the course of the next year or so. Thank you. Okay, for a short set of responses, we have a lot to fact check here. Golden started off by saying, quote, We just did congestion pricing in the state of New York. This is, at best, a dramatic misstatement. What Golden is referring to is a surcharge on taxis, lifts, and Ubers. It charges $2.75 for Lyft and Uber pickups south of 96th Street in Manhattan, $2.50 on taxis, and $0.75 cents on ride-sharing apps like Uberpool and Via. Golden goes on to claim that this program would put $400 million toward the MTA yearly, which isn't a stat but a direct quote from Cuomo himself, and an estimation. The MTA has already spent a vast majority of that $400 million, which barely paid for worker overtime on their fast-track program. It doesn't even affect the MTA's biggest liability, its ballooning debt, which, as a recent Comptroller report just explained. It accounts for 16% of the MTA's budget, paying off debt. Worst, what Marty calls congestion pricing isn't tailored to how long a for-hire vehicle spends in Lower Manhattan. It only gets charged if it randomly passes through for even a second, meaning that it's both untargeted and puts the burden on taxi and for-hire vehicle drivers who are already seeing massive problems with depression and suicide lately. Secondly, Golden refutes Gennardus' statement that the MTA needs $100 billion, instead saying it only needs $30 billion. They're both right in a way. Gennardus was referring to the MTA's 20-year capital needs assessment, which says that it needs $105 billion from now until 2034. The $30 billion Marty refers to is what the MTA needs in total through 2019. Marty could also be referring to the $28 billion 10-year plan that the MTA has proposed, which is a specific program designed only to stabilize the subway system from its current freefall, aka the fast-forward program. And since the debate, that $28 million has been revised to $40 billion. And even then, MTA president and chairman were quick to point out that the cost for that estimate was still, to quote Chairman Loda, not complete. Indeed, a recent Comptroller report, which was put out right after the debate, cited massive failings in MTA funding. 
The report specifically calls out the funding Marty claims credit for, explaining that, quote, despite an infusion of $836 million in state and city funds, of which that Uber and Lyft surcharge is a part, quote, there has been little improvement so far in subway service, end quote. And part of that money is still unused by the MTA. Quoting the report again, this time referring to the four-person MTA Capital Review Board Mr. Golden sits on, quote, the 2015-2019 program was not approved by the Capital Program Review Board until May of 2016 because of delays in obtaining an agreement on state and city funding. In the first year of the program, the MTA only committed $186 million of the $3.2 billion planned for that year. End quote. We consider Golden's assertions that we shouldn't worry about MTA funding, and that the state has it under control, to be in direct contradiction to nearly every transit expert's opinion on the subject. Additionally, Golden mentions that he wants to reduce Verrazano tolls. This is something that both he and Democratic Assemblyman Abate have worked on in the last few years. Abate, if you remember from earlier, is the guy that Golden said he wanted term-limited out of office. Golden and Abate already have a bill on the floor of their respective legislatures that had cut the Verrazano toll in half if you are a Brooklyn resident. It passed Marty's Senate, and it's waiting to pass in the Assembly before it can get signed by Cuomo. It seems that both Golden and Gennardis agree that, even then, fares are too high on the Verrazano. Finally, Golden said he'd only support congestion pricing if it was done responsibly. This March, in an interview with the Brooklyn Eagle, Golden mentioned what that would look like. First, he wanted Uber and taxis to have specific fees. This, as we mentioned earlier, has already happened. Two, that his support is contingent on Brooklyn residents getting a discount on the Verrazano, which, as we also just mentioned, is moving through the legislature. With these two conditions already having been met, or at least in process, we can't imagine what additional caveats Golden is implying here when he says he needs to see it being done responsibly. Being intentionally vague, even when he's already been on the record defining what he'd need to vote yes, makes us think he's in the middle of backpedaling on this issue. He's moved from his two demands to a vague statement in this debate about not wanting to put a tax on people commuting into Manhattan, which is exactly the core element of congestion pricing. Anyway, let's keep going. The next question is rather controversial. Okay, a question from the audience for both of you. In light of recent Catholic Church allegations and settlements, will both of you commit to supporting the Child Victims Act? And if you say yes, why? Or if you say no, why? So the Child Victims Act that's up in Albany right now, do you support it or don't you support it? I think it's a travesty of justice that children who are sexually assaulted cannot have their fair day in court. And so I absolutely, unequivocally, 1,000% support the Child Victims Act. I think it's a travesty of justice that women who are the survivors of domestic and sexual violence don't have their stories believed. And when they are raped, they have a limited period of time in which to file charges for rape. Uh, and that's why I also support extending the statute of limitations for rape victims. I think it's a travesty of justice that those who are the most vulnerable and can't speak for themselves are those who are shut out from our criminal justice system and never have their day in court. And I will always stand on the side of victims who are trying to adjudicate their rights. Thank you. Gennardis supports the Child Victims Act. We thought it might help to explain that act in some detail. The act would mean that people who are sexually abused as children would have extended statutes of limitations in order to bring their cases to trial. 
Specifically, it would let them bring civil cases to court until they were 50 years old, and felony cases until they were 28. This means that you'd have until 28 to bring your actual rapist or assaulter to court, and until the age of 50 to bring any organization, church, or institution to court for their role in that assault. The law as it stands now is, if you were abused as a minor, you have until your 23rd birthday to file charges of any sort. Period. Full stop. It's one of the most restrictive statute of limitations in the entire country. Additionally, the assembly version of the bill Gennardus has been in favor of includes a look-back window that would let any abuse victim file civil lawsuits for one year after the passage of the bill, even if they're over 50. This is what many organizations are deathly afraid of. It opens the door to many older cases being brought back up that were supposed to be impossible to litigate. It's important to point out that the Child Victims Act doesn't have a look-back window for criminal cases, that is, against individuals, only civil. But Gennardus went further than the act itself in his statement, and declared support for eliminating the statute of limitations entirely for all rape cases, criminally, and irrespective of degree. There's a warning I'd like to put in here, as I'm about to talk about the legal degrees of rape. Feel free to skip forward the next 30-35 seconds if that kind of detail might bother you. Currently, only rape and sexual assault in the first degree have unlimited statutes of limitations. Second and third degree rape, you must report within five years. Second and third degree rapes are simply those that don't involve the explicit threat of death and includes elder abuse, assaulting someone while drunk, asleep, or intoxicated, or not beating the victim and not brandishing a deadly weapon during the act. These second and third degree assaults are often the very kind of assaults that take the longest for victims to report. Now that we have a better idea of what the Child Victims Act is, let's hear from Marty on the subject. There is a bill up there, it's called the Child Victims Fund, and that fund would go in and be available for kids that were abused, children that were abused, not just by um, Catholics, but by parochial schools, by public schools across the board. We're only talking about one parochial system. There's a whole host of systems and a whole host of public schools. This is something that goes back a long, long time. A statute of limitations is there for a reason. You want to do away with statute of limitations for a crime, you've got to do away with statute of limitations for all crimes. We're going back 40 years. People are dead. Uh, people are gone. We have no idea what's going on. But the one thing we've got to be, we have to be, uh, we have to know what the victims are suffering. We've got to make sure we take care of those victims. And this fund would take care of all of those children across the board. And I think that's how we have to do this. Be fair about it. Take care of our victims. Be responsible. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. Okay, Frank. The, the discussion before was on giving tax credits to public schools. You know, why would I want to give a tax credit? First of all, a closing tax credit. Why would I want to give a tax credit to an organization that's just paid out twenty-seven million dollars to poor people? They're being now investigated. Aside from uh, this fund, why aren't we supporting the Child Victim Act that punishes these, these churches and schools and these priests who are shifting around? And now the discussion came, well, we ought to get tax rates for the Catholic Church. Well, Catholic schools as well. When he, this bishop is told the schools that are record 
First, Martin heavily implies here that the Child Victims Act targets the Catholic Church. This is false, as we stated before. While, yes, the look-back window and civil statutes are rather expansive, the bill also does extend the statute on criminal cases by five years. It's not nothing, it's not everything, but it will help everyone. Furthermore, it does not target any religion. It only targets organizations in general. Next, Golden states that if you do away with statute of limitations, you need to do it with all crimes. Which is absurd. There is no statute of limitations in New York for murder, embezzlement of public funds, arson, kidnapping, terrorism, conspiracy, and rape in the first degree, but not other degrees. As a former cop, Marty must absolutely know this. Further, Minnesota and Delaware both eliminated statutes of limitations entirely for sexual assault of a minor. Marty is using a slippery slope argument here that does not hold water. Some of you may have read some articles from the debate that followed this one in Diker Heights, where Martin claimed to not know what the Child Victims Act actually entails. I believe one of the headlines was Playing Dumb. His campaign manager later clarified he was confused on which version of the Child Victims Act the questioner was referring to. There is only one version currently on the floor of the legislature. Marty may have been confusing it with previous versions of the bill, which go back to 2006, over 10 years. 
all of these versions, he has also had a hand in blocking as well. So we're honestly not sure why he'd need to know which version it is, since he's opposed every single one. He was quoted in 2016, for example, opposing that version of the Child Victims Act. Back then, he said he saw, quote, no impetus, unquote, toward passing the bill. Translation, things aren't bad enough to warrant it, that it isn't pressing. He's made no such arguments at this debate, though, and instead floated the state senate's alternative to the Child Victims Act to the Child Victims Fund, so it's important to explain that. The fund would use state dollars to pay now-adult children who are abused so they can get therapy, among other things. There's been some question on whether the fund uses taxpayer money. It does, and it doesn't. The money for cashing out victims of sexual abuse would come from asset forfeitures. This means valuables seized by law enforcement from Manhattan only. The income on these valuables would go to pay for this fund. So, no, not taxpayer money directly. But the money does otherwise go to the city's general fund, which would then be used for law enforcement purposes. So essentially, Martin is proposing to take money out of the NYPD, a taxpayer-funded organization, to pay off victims. The often cash-flush institutions and organizations that may have sheltered sexual abusers, however, would remain protected with a statute of limitations remaining set at 23. I will say in closing on the subject that the Republican Child Victims Fund does one important thing the Democratic Child Victims Act does not. It eliminates criminal statutes of limitations entirely, at least in this version of the bill. No idea if that would be removed or not, but it's there. The Democratic Act would only extend that by five years, giving you until your 20th birthday to file charges against a predator directly. However, we aren't here debating the merits of the Act versus the Fund. There are candidates. We just heard from Gennardis, and his position goes beyond just the Child Victims Act, saying he'd push for complete elimination of criminal statutes of limitations, just like the Fund does. And not just for childhood sexual assaults, but all sexual assault. This leaves the two candidates with only one real difference. Should we let institutions who have covered up abuse off the hook? That's for you to decide. Anyway, back to the debate and Golden's rebuttal. Okay, Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> Candidates. My daughter is a retired public school special ed teacher. But you know my feeling about public schools. However, private school parents are also taxpayers. So in 1965, Nelson Rockefeller passed the textbook bill, which meant that the private schools were able to get textbooks, not religious books, but textbooks for the schools. That would help the taxpayers from the private schools. What do you to, uh, feel on that? Give me your opinion on, on that. Textbooks? Okay, you want the city or the state to supply textbooks to... Textbooks, right. To all schools? Private schools, yes. Textbooks only. To private schools? Yes. Interesting. Council Rockefeller passed in 1965. Okay, so this one is a bit odd, but the questioner wants to know the candidate's opinions about a law that's already on the books. Namely, it's one of the laws that lets taxpayer money go toward private and parochial schools as long as it's to fund non-denominational textbooks, ensuring that schools fulfill a minimum curriculum requirement. This is known as the Textbook Loan Program. 
The Supreme Court and Board of Education Central School District No. 1 v. Allen in 1967 declared that the program, still in effect today and others like them, didn't constitute public funding of religious institutions because it didn't target religious institutions specifically. As far as we know, there is no new Supreme Court cases questioning this constitutionality. Still, let's hear what the candidates think. Well, it's already part of the 22 territories that I talked about earlier. Textbooks, technology, attendance, all the parochial credit get paid for that. That's what it's been, and that's what it's going to continue to do, to continue to educate the children across the state of New York. Thank you, Will. Whether you go to a public school or a private school or parochial school, we have certain minimum standards that all students must be taught to. We have curriculum standards across the board. And if it makes sense for us to provide textbooks and resources like that so that every student can meet those uniform standards, then I think it makes sense to continue that program. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to jump a bit because the question was hard to hear. It's a clarification on congestion pricing, which was actually fielded and answered by the moderator related to number of axles on a car and charging them. Okay, question was going back to congestion pricing. It is all on axles. So yes, a big truck with a lot of axles is going to pay a lot more. Cars pay one thing, trucks pay the other. Goods, uh, we're going to pay more for it. Um... I have a question, one more question, and then we'll go into the closing remarks. This was brought by Mallory. Mallory, are you here? We're here. Okay. Mallory wants to know what I have to tell you about these two candidates. Um, Mallory wants to know the following. Will you make yourself available to constituents? My question? Sure. Thank you. Excuse me. I'll stand here so I can see everybody. My name is Mallory, and I requested a meeting with Senator Golden in February. Over 200 days have passed. I have been given the runaround. I have been ignored. I have been had phones hung up on me. My question, I, I've also reached out to press, so Senator Golden is aware of this, because Megan McGoldrick called his office for comment. They said no comment. That was at day 50. We are now at day 215. My question, I have met with Congressman Donovan. I went down to D.C. to meet with him. I met with Councilman Brannon. I meet with my representatives. I ask them questions. My question is, what will the candidates do to make themselves available to all constituents, even the ones who don't agree with them at all times? And I will also ask them to make a pledge here and now to hold quarterly town hall meetings for all constituents in various parts of the district. It's a two-part question. I'd like to answer to both parts, please. Thank you. How about your question, Okay. Um, make yourselves available to your, your constituents and hold town hall meetings in your districts. Absolutely. I mean, that's just a no-brainer. Even if someone disagrees with me, and look, we're not all going to agree on every single thing. If, if we all agree with each other, there's something wrong with all of us. Right? We're not always all going to agree with each other. But that's okay. That's the way the system is supposed to work. 
But what's not supposed to happen is we're not supposed to ignore those who disagree with us. We're not supposed to ignore those who make us feel uncomfortable. I promise that when I'm elected, there will always be a seat at my table for every single one of my constituents, regardless of their political viewpoint or their political party registration, because I can't do my job right unless I hear from my constituents. So I absolutely will take meetings with constituents. I absolutely will make myself accessible, accountable, fully transparent, and I will hold quarterly town hall meetings at a fair minimum in order to make sure that I'm representing every corner of this district. I'm not afraid of my constituents. Okay, that was what got the most press coverage, obviously. A few quick points before we go to closing statements. Mallory McMahon has been on this podcast before, specifically for our activist roundtable discussion on the NY11 candidate race, and she's in our oral history archive discussing her time at Fort Hamilton High School. Golden described her as, quote, a democratic operative, and that's been floated quite a bit on social media since then. This is false, since it implies that she's being paid by a campaign. An operative, or a plant in a debate, is not the same as simply someone who disagrees with you. So obviously, something got under Marty's collar. The background of Golden's response is this. Mallory had been trying to get a meeting, for over 200 days, with Senator Golden to discuss why he did not support releasing a significant amount of money owed to public schools by the state. The organization Mallory is a part of, Fight Back Bay Ridge, which by the way, isn't hierarchically run, or run by her, but organized by over 700 members, decided to do an issue-based leaflet campaign pushing Golden on that school issue, which Mallory's meeting was supposed to be, in part, to get answers on. Then, later in the summer, came Golden's decision not to support speed cameras in front of schools, which the Senate majority and Golden failed to bring up for a vote as the legislative session ended for the spring. This is also, as an aside, how the Child Victims Act was killed, too. It simply wasn't brought up for a vote so that lawmakers could get away with saying they didn't vote against it, per se. 
Fightback Bay Ridge's membership didn't like that, and ran afoul of campaign finance law by distributing stop signs that said, vote him out. Clearly not versed on campaign finance law, but eager to comply, they filed as an independent expenditure committee shortly thereafter and publicly disclosed that they had received no money or ties from any Bay Ridge political club or candidate. So when Golden also mentions that Fightback Bay Ridge is registered as, quote, a democratic club, unquote, this is a clear lie. The organization registered as an independent expenditure committee, not a club, and lets it directly fundraise for only the NY11 and 22nd State Senate District campaigns this election cycle, and not coordinate with any candidate. Further, a quick perusal of their campaign finance disclosures reveals that 90% of their donations are in district, which is more than what we can say for actually either of the candidates. Anyway, let's head to closing arguments. Thank you very much, everyone. Um, I think my closing statement is pretty simple. You just heard my opponent give the reason why I should earn the vote of every single person in this room. He's afraid that people will disagree with him. He's afraid that people will disagree with him. Before we came in here, I don't know if you would be on the cave on everything. We said hello to each other when we came in here this morning. I'm not afraid to say hello to people who might disagree with me. I'm not afraid to listen to people who might disagree with me. I'm not afraid of hearing opposing viewpoints. Because that's the type of leadership that we need in Albany. That's the type of leadership it's going to take for us to solve these problems that have not gotten solved year after year after year after year. Instead, we have the most unaccessible subway system in the entire country. Less than a quarter of our subway stations have elevators. It's not just a senior issue. It's a parent issue. It's someone who got injured. It's not a cane or a crutch or um, a cast. We have a healthcare system in this country and in this state that is leeching the life out of people, that people are paying more and more for their health care costs, and the costs are only going one direction, and that's up. We have a housing system in crisis. People can't afford to stay in their apartments. They can't afford to stay in their homes. The programs that Marty talked about are just the bare minimum. We have an education system here in the city that is overcrowded and underfunded. We're not going to solve these problems by refusing to talk to other people with other ideas. We're not going to solve these problems by shutting ourselves in a box and only talking to the people who agree with us. We're not going to solve these problems by doing the same thing over and over and over again. We have to do something different. We have to think about things differently. That's my pledge and my commitment to every single person in this district. I'm a graduate of our local schools. I grew up in the Greek church. I went to a parochial school as well. My family raised me with this understanding that we have an obligation to do everything we can for any other person in our community, regardless of who they are, where they come from, when they came here, who they love, or who, which God they worship. And that's something that I'm going to carry with me every single day that I'm going to be your representative, your state senator up in Albany. And that's the only commitment that I make to, that, to my constituents. So if you're okay with the status quo and what it's done for you over the last 16 years, you have your guy. It's the guy who refers to himself as the third person. If you think you can do better, if you even have a hope that we can have room for a vision for what our neighbor could look like, with some new energy and new perspectives, where I hope I have the chance to earn each and every one of your votes, and I hope that come November 6th, I'll be able to have made my case to you convincingly, and that you can go into that voting booth, regardless of what party you are registered for, and that you cast your vote for me. Thank you very much, everyone, for being out here.
Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, this good audience. Uh, this is a great day to be able to get and be able to discuss the different issues that are before us. Uh, right now, we live in some very trying times, uh, but we do live in the greatest community, in the greatest city, in the greatest nation in the world. And as bad as the picture uh, my uh, opponent would like to point out, we here live in one of the best communities in the city of New York, with the best parks, with the best education for our children, and a transportation system, not the greatest, but it's a transportation system that works and it will get better. Let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, take the picture of, you know, this is the worst, this is the worst, you want the same old. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a Democratic governor, it's a Democratic assembly. It's Democratic already. The only thing holding back the tribes is the Republican Senate. When they were in charge in 2009 and 2010, ladies and gentlemen, we were $10 million in deficit. And guess what they did? They raised spending by $14 billion. How did they pay for it? By increasing your taxes and fees. So when he says that this is going up and that's going up and you can't afford to live here, because the Democratic colleagues in the Assembly and the Governor of the State of New York, the Mayor of the City of New York, the City Council. That's one of the reasons that it's going on. So we need to do more, ladies and gentlemen. We need to do more for our community, and you have my commitment to do that. You've already seen what we've done with Design Bill on doing with the Brooklyn Queens Expressway so that we can get that done in a timely fashion, saving $400 million. $250 million going into NYCHA so we can get the homeless off the street and get them into apartments. No other city, a handful of cities, let them sleep on the middle of the streets and hurt, and hurt themselves and hurt other people. It's plain, plain wrong. And of course, my good colleague stands with the good governor yesterday. And listen to our good governor uh, supporting him. Uh, the, so we're giving out the powers of checks and balances uh, to the Como administration, letting cop killers out of jail, child molesters out of jail, and paroling them. And then he's pardoning them so that they can vote. Can you imagine going into our schools and allowing these child molesters to vote in a public school? Ladies and gentlemen, it is wrong. We talk about corruption. He turned out the governor, his whole office is just surrounded by corruption. But he stands with us. And he's the one standing investigated by the FBI. Not being investigated. Completely wrong. Completely wrong. That's not true. It's a lie and it's a full lie. And you can tell it's a lie all you want. It's a lie and you know it. This is what you want in Albany. This is what you want. Keeping up your ladies we put money into our parks to make sure they can service you so we can have our best parks. We have a 2% property tax that we fought to get. Not raise taxes, but bring down taxes. We put in $4 billion so that we can have a tax uh, uh, break for not only our uh, middle class, but for our small businesses. Ladies and gentlemen, we fought to make sure we improve the services for our veterans and making sure that there is VA hospital stays here and the good Fort Hamilton Army base behind us stays here. Taking care of our veterans, that's the right thing to do. Ladies and gentlemen, my parents paid for my island. They raised eight kids. Uh, we all went to parochial schools. We went to public colleges. We all got a great education. We got great opportunities. We went on to do good. You all know me. You know what I've done for this community. And you know I'm going to continue to fight for this community and do what's right for this community. And that's what you want. Somebody that's going to be there fighting and keeping a balance, a balance in the state of New York. A Republican Senate and a Democratic Assembly keeps checks on balances on all of us. 
to get the Democrats to take over the Senate would be the worst thing that could ever happen to us, and it would be the worst thing that could happen to our community. Ladies and gentlemen, we do, and we should be proud. We're proud of the senior center. We're proud of all the hard work that you've done, all the children, the children that you raised and went on to do good things and continue to do good things, and your great-grandchildren that will go on to do great things because we live in the greatest nation in the world, and we fought for that under one flag, under our God, and we're going to continue to do that with your support on November 6th. You have a choice, ladies and gentlemen. Make the right choice. Thank you. God bless you. And have a great day. All right, some quick wrap-up, since much of their closing arguments stand on their own and were mostly rhetoric. We'd like to note that Golden closed out the debate by claiming that Gennardus was painting a, quote, bad picture of the neighborhood. One hour after this debate, Golden held a press conference on Fifth Avenue, saying that crime was on the rise and the neighborhood was unsafe. He was called out by constituents for this sudden change in tone. Golden also mentioned during the two years the state Senate had Democratic control, 2009 to 2010, that the state was $10 billion in deficit. We'd like to point out that he is glossing over uh, the 2008 stock market crash. So maybe not a great time to criticize the $10 billion deficit when in 2018, we still faced a nearly $5 billion deficit, despite Marty, quote, holding back the tide. (laughs) Canardis also mentioned Marty referring to himself in the third person. This is from an interview with the New York Post that Marty gave on September 24th, 2018, in which Golden said, quote, They can't take down Marty Golden. Golden is golden. November will be a golden month. Golden has been at the top of his game. If that's the top of his game, we'd hate to see the bottom. We hope you enjoyed the analysis and the fact checks. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at at RadioFreeBR, where we've been doing some live tweeting of the other debates and occasionally we'll be live streaming. Remember to subscribe to Radio Free Bay Ridge on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, the Golden Gennardus debate that day was just one of many, and we recorded all of the candidates at the forum, including Adam Baumel versus Nicole Maliotakis, Mathilde Frontis versus Steve Saperstein, who couldn't attend due to a new baby, and Max Rose versus Dan Donovan, who couldn't attend because he was in D.C. and then got caught in a lie because he was actually in Staten Island attending a health fair, which he wasn't even speaking at. We'll be putting that audio up on our website at at radiofreebayridge.org in the coming days, including the actual Max Rose-Donovan debate from Zaverian from a few days ago. It was a NY1 recorded event, but we have some problems with their current ongoing spectrum strike, so if you want to listen to a non-union-busting organization, you can listen through us. So stay tuned, and as always, stay free, Bay Ridge.